Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. It's that time of year again, March 8th, Women's Day. In truth, every day is Women's Day. Just ask women. But since 50% of the population has not always been allotted equal rights in many fields of life and work, there's a need to remind the other 50%, and many women too, that rights belong to everyone. This sentiment is not a new invention. Take the late 18th century, for example, the early age of revolutions. In the United States, on March 31st, 1776, in a letter to her husband, future First Lady Abigail Adams makes a plea to future President John Adams, then at the Continental Congress that served as the provisional government of the founding 13 colonies of the US, to remember the ladies and be more generous and favourable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to ferment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. In France, on September 14, 1791, the Declaration of the Rights of Women and of the Female Citizen was issued. Written by playwright, activist and feminist Olympe de Gourges, it was a response to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen in 1789, a founding document of the French Revolution. Seeking to underline the gender disparity of the revolution, in her declaration, de Gorge mirrors the articles of the original, but highlights them as female issues too. In a fascinating postscript to the text, she calls upon women to wake up to their rights. If giving my sex an honourable and just consistency is considered to be at this time paradoxical on my part, and an attempt at the impossible, I leave to future men the glory of dealing with this matter. But while waiting, we can prepare the way with national education, with a restoration of morals, and with conjugal agreements. The men of the revolution were not enamoured of Olympe de Gourges and her writings and opinions. She was swiftly accused of treason, condemned as a counter-revolutionary, and denounced as an unnatural woman. She went to the guillotine in 1793. In England, too, there were voices calling for women's rights at this time. Author Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women was published in 1792 and remains a classic to this day, explaining in plain English why women and men should be treated equally, from the regulation of their lives and duties to education. She also repeatedly called for women's voting rights. Women ought to have representatives instead of being arbitrarily governed without any direct share allowed them in the deliberations of government. Someone who knows much about the deliberations of government, as well as issues of representation, and a fierce defender of women's rights, is Arantxa González Laya. Her career is legendary, including 10 years as Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Spain, Assistant Secretary General of the UN, and Executive Director of the International Trade Center, and a number of senior positions in the European Union. She's currently Dean of the Paris School of International Affairs at Sciences Po, the first woman to hold the position, and our guest today for this International Women's Day episode. Hello, how are you? 
very well, thank you, and thanks a lot for this invitation. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with all of you today. It is a very great pleasure to have you. Perhaps we can start, as we always do in this podcast, with you telling us a bit about yourself and about your career. So I, uh, I'm Spanish. Uh, I was born in, um, in the north uh, of uh, Spain, and um, I wanted very clearly since I was a kid to work for the European Union. Um, this was the time when my country was walking towards the EU after a long period of dictatorship. And the EU was a light. It was uh, this lighthouse that attracted all of us, uh, the youngsters of my generation, to want to work in European affairs and to be associated with Europe. Modernity, democracy, rights, freedoms. Uh, so I studied law, European law, and uh, I started working here in Brussels uh, as a lawyer in private practice. Then moved to the European Commission. Uh, a dream came true. Um, I worked in uh, many uh, in international trade and development in foreign affairs. And then uh, life took me to Geneva, the house of multilateralism, um, working in um, the World Trade Organization, the rule maker for international trade. Then working in the United Nations, in a leading an agency that uh, uh, works to help developing countries participate in international trade. And then, in an unexpected turn of events, uh, I was called uh, to serve as uh, Foreign Minister of Spain in 2020, uh, which I did uh, for two years before uh, joining Academia. A very different uh, life, um, you know, which tells me that you should not plan too much about your own future because life takes you in unexpected directions. But um, you know, always very uh, clear in my mind that uh, there is something that humans need to build on, is the ability to talk to each other, uh, to work with each other, to collaborate, to build consensus. And that is not easy, because obviously the starting points for every nation, for every human being is different. But that magic happens when we get to an agreement that helps us address the big challenges of our time. And um, maybe to start this conversation, how difficult it is today to find this consensus, to get people to talk, uh, to address grievances and differences through dialogue rather than uh, using weapons, uh, invading each other or violating uh, all the rules. And this, and this is what uh, I have learned uh, in my career, and this is what I think uh, needs repeating, especially in these very difficult moments. It is a very difficult moment indeed, and we'll come back to it, but there's one question I wanted to ask you apropos Women's Day and Spain. Where do you think the feminist or the women's rights movement started in Spain? Can you go as far back as the 18th century? I know maybe all, uh, I mean, the issue of uh, women's rights is very uh, closely knitted with uh, uh, the quest for progress, uh, for democracy, for freedoms, for rights, which is uh, uh, as old as humanity, let's say. But to me, there is a very uh, clear moment. This is 1931 in Spain. Uh, is a period of uh, Republican government uh, where Spain is experimenting with uh, a new constitution. It's a constitution that for the first time recognizes the right of women to vote and has a very precise figure called Clara Campoamor, a figure that did so much to get us women in Spain to vote for the first time in 1933. Wow. 
uh, but which then had to face, uh, let's not forget that after this period of uh, Republican government, uh, we had uh, a dictatorship. She had to leave the country. She died in exile in Switzerland, which uh, tells us that um, we have to realize that sometimes we are not prophets in our own land. Not at all. Well, at least she didn't end her life like uh, Olympe de Gauche. Nobody mm. sent her to the guillotine. That's the good part, maybe. Yeah, although being in exile is, uh, is also, and uh, being away from the land where you have done so much to improve the future of your citizens, and in this case to improve uh, the life and the rights of women, it's a bit like uh, being guillotined, not in, maybe not in the physical sense, but yes, in being castrated in the possibility of improving uh, and contributing to improving uh, life in your own country, something that uh, for people that uh, like Clara Campoamor, that was very clearly devoted to public service, is a bit of a castration, right? I suspect that that is very much true, and I um, hope very much that there's less of these women around the world now. But we all know that there are still a lot of places in which the rights of women are not respected and that they don't have equality or even rights to vote in some cases. But let's go back to Spain and the state of the world. Spain, to a certain extent, is wonderfully European, yet at the same time sits at a, at a junction, really, yeah. between Europe, the Mediterranean, Africa, the Atlantic... Is it a very cosmopolitan place to grow up and from which to gain a perspective, not just on Europe, but on the world? Let's say that uh, when I was born, it wasn't the case. I was born in a dictatorship that is the opposite to cosmopolitan view of the world. But it's true that we've made an incredible effort at becoming part of the world. And that means embracing the specificity that we have. We are in the, uh, let's say, southern western corner of the European Union, looking over the Atlantic with very clear links with America, with the Americas, mm -hmm. the north, the center, the south, uh, but at the same time uh, closest to Africa than Madrid is to Paris, and therefore with a great connection with this incredible continent uh, called Africa, starting with our closest uh, neighbors in the Mediterranean. We are a Mediterranean country, but if you look at the first globalization, the one that took for the first time Europeans to Asia, it was the Spanish and Portuguese sailors that did that, right? It was Elcano, it was Vasco da Gama, it was... Um, this is uh, a country, Spain, that over the centuries has been connecting with the rest of the world. And in a way, right now, it's like going back to where we were, a country looking uh, from a very European position with a very clear European sentiment. This is what every Paul says of Spaniards, committed uh, to the European Union, but also with very specific connections with the rest of the world that we must leverage to make sure that Europe maintains this connection with the rest of the world. And actually, we call this the rest of the world. Maybe we should not. Maybe we should talk about connecting with the world. <laughs> because this is what, uh, this is what uh, we modestly from Spain, but also from the European Union, want. Not a fortress Europe, not a European Union that is hidden behind very high walls, but a European Union that derives its growth, its wealth, its innovation, its creativity by being connected 
with the world. And the world is very diverse today. And it's this diversity that makes us all so strong as European Union. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, but using your perspective as this globalist sitting from a Spanish perspective, but from a globalist perspective, what is the state of the world as far as you're concerned now? Well, the world is going through a transition. Um, and it's been, um, it's more multipolar today than it was uh, in the past. There are many more countries that have agency and have the capacity to shape, the capacity to say yes, the capacity to say no, to decide, to influence. But in this multipolar world, we are having trouble defining um, how we govern this multipolar world. Is, uh, is this a world that will be governed uh, by might, by force, by spheres of influence, imperial dreams, neocolonialism, or is this a world complex uh, with individual aspirations but lo also lots of collective problems that requires some set of rules, a commitment to respect a set of principles, uh, mechanisms to... Uh, resolve disputes, and thus is what at, is at stake today. And we we have forces that are pulling in different directions. Uh, some, uh, and we are seeing this clearly with uh, uh, Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine. It's a, it's one vision. It's one of might, making right. And let's not forget that at the end of the day, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council of the UN with the specific responsibilities to uphold the UN Charter. We're not talking about just any country. We are talking about one that has a specific responsibilities towards maintaining some sort of order. Let's discuss what order, but do we want, and this is the big question mark we have ahead of us, and for which Europe is very clearly on one side, do we have a world governed by might, and might decides what is right, or do we respect a set of, a compact, a set of principles? But you raise a very important question for me, which I think is not discussed enough, which is, take Russia... Right now, it's invaded another country and actively destroying it. But in a sense, it's been doing that since at least 2014 in Syria. Russian planes, it wasn't Syrian planes, that were bombing civilians, that were destroying cities. China, we know, is actively suppressing, and that's a very delicate way of putting it, uh, um, millions of people, the Uyghurs. And they're both members, permanent members of the Security Council. Is it viable? Can you carry on with these structures and pretend that that's okay? And it's a big question that uh, we obviously uh, we obviously face. Huh? This is uh, it's uh, obviously it's clear to everyone that there are shortcomings in the current system, in the current quote unquote international order. That there are uh, lots of difficulties, shortcomings uh, in the way uh, we are organized to basically deliver on responses to all these global challenges, be it climate change, be it pandemics, be it uh, financial stability, uh, and the list goes on. We have trouble. The current structures have trouble. They have trouble on the legitimacy side and they have trouble on the efficiency side, the two. But um, the question ahead of us is, do we just simply uh, throw these structures and principles out of the window or do we try to uh, improve, change, uh, modify what we have, having been inside the machine, having been a blue collar uh, of uh, multilateralism, having been in the engine room where you've got to 
um, make uh, a spaces for these new voices, where, uh, which uh, is something we did in the World Trade Organization when uh, we get many more countries sitting at the table. It's not in the, in the World Trade Organization. There is no Security Council. It's one country, one vote, and decisions are taken by consensus. So it is, in my view, preferable to think of improving the structures that we have to do that from the base, uh, to do that uh, by weaving together a new compact that will bind members of the international community, understanding clearly that today we have trouble with uh, some members of the international community that have their own views about how these rules uh, uh, should be. But let's have that discussion. In my view, it is better to open the way for a discussion than to simply resort to uh, using weapons killing civilians, bombarding cities, or even threatening with the ultimate threat that we should not use, which is a nuclear weapon. So we need to re-bring this uh, back uh, to some sort of uh, uh, discussion. I think it's much more complicated to do uh, with Russia today because it's clearly chosen a camp of uh, aggression, of war. Um, I do think that uh, this is a conversation we need to have with China, uh, which probably, uh, in, at least if we take at face value the words of uh, its president, is as concerned as we are about uh, threats to use the nuclear weapon that we know is the red line no one should cross. I couldn't agree more, as I've said before. Because of time, let us slightly stop that point here and point out to ourselves that we're always talking about US, Russia, China, Europe. What about Africa? What about Latin America? What about other parts of Asia? What do they think? Why are we never talking about them other than as an addendum? What's your take on that? So there is a very interesting um, survey that has, done, has been done by the European Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, it tells us very clearly that they don't see the world like we see the world. That they don't see war in Ukraine as their first uh, concern. That there is even a little bit of schadenfreude that we are facing what uh, they in the past or maybe in the present continue to face. And this is why, in my view, uh, Europe has to be very attentive uh, to obviously, as a priority, working to end this terrible war in Ukraine, but being attentive to the concerns and the difficulties and the aspirations that many other countries around the world uh, have, because this is how they will feel they have a stake also in helping end this war in Ukraine. Now, what are the concerns they have? Um, there is a big one uh, that I share, uh, which is a huge debt stress. More than 40 countries around the world today are in a very serious debt stress. What does this mean? It means that these countries don't have the means to finance basic services like education, like healthcare, things that are basic to the eradication of extreme poverty in those countries. Obviously, uh, they have no means to finance the energy transition. They have very little left to fight against climate change. And uh, the idea that there is a tech revolution is a distant dream. So we, Europeans, if we care about them caring about our problems, 
should also care more about their problems. We need, therefore, um, to launch a, a big debate about the international financial architecture and how will we help uh, countries that are highly indebted, not often not because they've been bad managers, but just simply because the needs on their side have piled up because they had to exit a COVID crisis spending and spending and spending like we did, but they had less fiscal space because then interest rates uh, went up as a result of tightening by the uh, Federal Reserve followed by the European Central Bank. And then came uh, massive increases in fuel, fertilizers and food prices. And all of this for them means debt, debt, debt. So priority to, to be uh, sensitive to on our side. And the majority of these countries are Africa, Middle East? These countries are all over the, uh, all over the world. I mean, the, uh, the UN uh, Development Programme, UNDP, has done a very, um, very good report uh, mapping this. Uh, and they are not, of course, the poorer you are, the more you have trouble. But you also have countries like Ghana that is in, in big uh, fiscal stress simply because the burden that has been created as a, as a result of the tightening of the fiscal conditions for them and the spending they've had uh, to incur to respond to the needs of their citizens, like we have had to incur. They said that here in the European Union, we did a next-generation EU. We pulled our resources to improve our capacity to borrow, to invest collectively. This is a distant dream for them. So, this, I want, there are many other issues, of course, but this is one that we have to be very sensitive to because it will define the capacity that these countries have to uh, maintain uh, stability and, uh, uh, and uh, a decent future for their citizens. It will also increase tensions because no doubt, in the same way as we're talking about it here, then people in Russia, people in China who are all competing now for power in this multipolar world will be seeking out these countries and saying, here, I will give you cheap money. I think Russia's got less capacity to do it, but um, I will give you cheap money and you do what I want. But it's a very, very interesting problem you're suggesting. What is your solution? Well, the, the, the solution is first to put this uh, at the center of the agenda, of the international agenda, to make this a priority uh, collectively. This is... Uh, um, why the president of France, uh, Emmanuel Macron, has convened a summit in June this year to uh, address precisely the debt issues that many countries faced. Um, thus is um, a conversation that needs to start. There will be a G20 led by India thereafter that will need also to continue this conversation. And again, there, is, um, there, is, there are different problems behind this debt issue. Um, which has to be unpacked. For some, is basically today that they are broke. Technically, they are broke. They cannot borrow. For others, um, uh, like many countries, for example, in the Caribbean, and this is a fight led by Barbados and the, its Prime Minister Mia Motley, a woman that has taken this as a big priority uh, for her, is uh, where, how can we help countries like Barbados invest in building resilience against climate change. They don't emit. They are not CO2 emitters, but they are on the receiving end 
of the impact uh, that CO2 emissions elsewhere is having on them, from increases in the sea level to, uh, you know, life in the ocean uh, that is becoming depleted, uh, to extreme weather events that destroy entire countries that need to be rebuilt, creating a huge debt issue. So um, this is uh, a conversation that uh, we need to start to unpack the different dimensions and then uh, to discuss remedies. Now, remedies are not impossible to get when we've had to find massive amounts of money to develop a new vaccine to fight against COVID. We have found the resources. So if we really have to invest collectively to ensure every country has the means to uh, reduce CO2 emissions, uh, to keep within the Paris commitments, then we must be able to make this our priority. So it's not that these things are impossible to solve. They are not. It's that we have to make these issues a priority internationally if we want them to be addressed. We have a non-functioning global order or global governance we've discussed. We've discussed debt. Mm -hmm. What are the problems? You have one last one for today. Uh, I think we have, uh, and this is International Women's Day, we have a huge issue with uh, women's rights. And this is, um, by the way, not just in Afghanistan and Iran, not just in Myanmar and not just in Ukraine. These are extreme versions of a trend that is growing also in the European Union, also in the United States. And it speaks of limiting uh, the ability of women to make their own decisions, uh, limiting the ability of women to be educated, limiting the ability of women to be actors, actors uh, for peace, limiting the ability of women over their sexual and reproductive health, limiting the ability of women to benefit from the economy. And we know that there is no such thing as still as equal pay for work of equal value. So this is a fight that we have to take seriously, especially in democracies. We love to talk about democracies, but what kind of democracy are we building if we are leaving behind the futures of women and girls? So this is our unfinished business. Uh, the gap is getting bigger, it's not getting smaller, which is why we have to recommit. We have to double down. And we have to make this um, not a partisan issue, not an issue of one political party, not an issue of women fighting with women uh, uh, for women's rights. We have to make this societal issues. This is a societal issue. This is the strength of our society, the strength of our democracy that is at stake. So I hope uh, we will take this seriously because if not, it's societies that we are rendering more fragile. And let's face it, we are already fragile enough to add uh, more fragility uh, to, uh, to this world. So women's and girls' rights protected, preserved by men and women working together. I don't think I could agree with you more. Just on the education issue, it's worth noting that in its um, 2022 
um, reports than UNESCO, the UN agency devoted to culture and education, pointed out that two-thirds of the 771 million adults without basic literary skills um, are women. And in over two-thirds of states globally, young women make up only 25% of students in engineering or ICT, information and communications technology, the digital and cyber worlds. That in itself is very, very problematic because, again, you're not preparing women for the future. You're not preparing women um, for the ability to function equally or in a meaningful way and to raise children in a meaningful way for the next generation to function. And I always find that, um, I come from a family of educators and I always find that the most distressing issue. Coming back to Mary Wollstonecraft, she says, education deserves emphatically to be termed cultivation of mind, which teaches young people how to begin to think. And I think that's very, very worthwhile thinking about ourselves because we've forgotten what the point of education is sometimes. We're so eager to instill skills or speak about democracy but sometimes it's about teaching people how to think independently and I think women need to do that more and more. I don't know what you think. Well uh, this is where I'm devoting uh, my life now um, as Dean of the Paris School of International Affairs in Sciences Po, uh, a school that prides itself in uh, being different Sciences Po was set up 150 years ago by Emil Woodney, who had this idea of interdisciplinary, uh, giving individuals who come to this institution the tools needed to make their own mind. And to make their own mind because they've, again, learned knowledge, skills, experience, interdisciplinary, which is what the world looks like today. He was a bit of a visionary, but with a very clear mandate today especially in the area of international affairs, in such a turbulent moment, uh, giving our students the ability to, to decide, to think, to confront and debate with those who do not think in the same way. Not to reject those that don't think like, like you think or like I think, but to embrace the idea that we can discuss Back to uh, the Greek uh, agora, where we have to be able to discuss and discuss our differences, um, make and reason and argue, uh, as opposed to just simply suppress. So, uh, yes, very committed uh, to doing that, um, doing this with the young generations, instilling this idea of uh, equality uh, from the very beginning, uh, making sure that we help close the gap rather than continue open uh, this gap and grow it wider, you know, reduce it uh, to the point uh, when the 8th of March would become the day when we would celebrate that there was once uh, inequality uh, and celebrate that we no longer have to fight for that because we have achieved it. What a wonderful sentiment on which to end this fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our special guest, Arancha Gonzalez-Laya. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. 
so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, and my friend and producer, Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation.